Thank you everyone for joining us today. My name is Brad Erickson. I'm the Director of Reconstructive Urology at the University of Iowa. The title of this session is Controversies in Urology, Robotic Reconstruction. Almost as good as the real thing. There are many areas in reconstructive urology that this panel could be discussing today, but we'll spend the next 30 minutes of a lot of time talking specifically about ureteral reconstruction, since this panel believes there's still a lot of overlap between open and robotic surgery in this field. And if you're hoping that this discussion will be a debate about whether or not the robot should or should not be used, you'll be disappointed because after all, the robot is just a tool. And if this tool makes some of these difficult cases easier and better, and we should all be learning how to do them. So without further ado, I'll be introducing our four panelists for today. First, Dr. Brian Flynn, who is a reconstructive urologist at the University of Colorado. Brian, quickly, as someone who I know performs both open and robotic surgeries, how has your practice evolved during your career, and what provided you with the impetus to start performing robotic reconstruction? Yeah, thanks, Brad, for having me on the panel. I've been in practice 18 years. I've been doing robotics about half of the time. Um, I'm board certified in urology and also in female pelvic medicine. So robotics is pretty popular in FPMRS, and I got my start doing pelvic floor reconstruction. Uh, once I gained that experience, um, I started to see the value of robotics throughout my practice in terms of having uh, a better visualization, less blood loss shorter convalescence and improved outcomes. And so it was really my experience that gave me confidence uh, from doing uh, female pelvic reconstructive cases. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to have that as my index case in order to stay current on the road. But I think you need to do approximately two, maybe even more than two cases a month to really make any kind of progress in developing your skill set. Um, I did get some mentoring from my oncology partners, and I think that's important for older urologists when they're getting started is to lean on the people next to you. I know Dr. Yoon and others have collaborated with their partners on robotic cases, and I, I think there's so much overlap between traditional reconstruction, robotics, oncology, female cases that you want to kind of draw from the experts around you and network with your colleagues around the country. Great. It's great to have you here, Dr. Flynn. Um, Dr. Un is the Director of Minimally Invasive Robotic Surgery and Oncology and Reconstructive Surgery at Temple University. Daniel, I'm curious, are there any types of ureteral or bladder neck cases in which you wouldn't at least attempt a robotic repair? In other words, are there some times where you'll refer these cases to some of your open colleagues? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that that answer has shifted and changed over time. You know, I started uh, uh, my practice in 2008, and, uh, you know, we had about 5% reconstructive uh, volume at that time, primarily just pyeloplasties, which I, primary pyeloplasties, I don't even almost counted in this area. Um, but uh, now it's about 40% of our volume, and we've now taken on a completely different uh, profile of patients that are you know, multiple prior X labs, colostomies, you know, existing urostomies, uh, radiation, gunshots. And um, I, I would, I want to answer this question a little carefully because I don't want to send out the wrong message. I think that you've got to take this in little pieces and you've got to develop your skill set. At this point in my career, we'll take on just about any abdomen 
uh, in the case. There are some that are truly disastrous, some that I've caused on my own, that I may then take it and then pass it off to Mike Mitro, my open surgery partner. It's very, very few and far between at this point. I also, as far as full disclaimer, I don't do a lot of, I don't do any bladder neck reconstructions. I do some reconstruction after anastomotic disruptions and failures after radical prostates, but I don't, I don't have a depth in bladder neck reconstruction like some of you guys uh, here in this expert uh, panel may have. Well, great. It's great to have you here. I, you, you did provide me with a few slides, and I wonder if you might just uh, briefly talk about some of the principles that you've followed um, as being a, an innovator in reconstructive, uh, reconstructive surgeries. Uh, Lee Zhao is the guy that has really kind of uh, shown me uh, Gilly's principle. You know, uh, Gilly's is the father of reconstructive plastic surgery and um, really just a, a formidable figure historically in developing uh, reconstructive principles. And, uh, you know, I pulled uh, two that were very apropos to uh, what um, I do with ureteral reconstructive surgery. And it's uh, replace losses with similar tissues. And I, I apologize, this next bullet point should say, replace damaged ureter with, with graft most analogous to the urethelium, buccal mucosa or appendix in some situations. That's what, I'm sorry, the, the typo. And then don't necessarily discard living tissue. And, and you know, some of the, the progression in my mind, um, and as, as I've dealt with a lot of these strictures is that, you know, a lot of times it's a waste, you know, when you have like a mid ureter uh, stricture to discard the whole, distal segment. And so um, I look I look at these often more of a field defect instead of, um, you know, distal segment loss and try to treat it as such by using graft and flaps uh, in some of these cases, but not all. And I'll show you some of my data slides later on to show you what we do with mid versus distal versus mid and distal. Well, fantastic. Great to have you here. Um, our third panelist is Professor John Kelly, who's a consulting urologist at University College London and specializes, like Dr. Oon, in robotic urologic oncology. Professor Kelly, welcome. Um, I would, I guess, ask you to expand a little bit on what Dr. Oon said and maybe talk about how you work with your reconstructive colleagues in terms of uh, dealing with benign conditions when you are trained as an oncologist. Hi, Bradley. <clears throat> Hi, guys. Thank you very much. It's a really interesting question because for years I have lamented the fact that we didn't go into robotics together. We kicked off with our robotic program uh, 10 years ago, and we've, we're now approximately 100 bladders, 800 prostates, and we've made a lot of mistakes. I guess we've dispelled a lot of things that we were doing before and changed our technique. I think the problem with robotic recon, there wasn't an index operation for our guys to come along with that. But there's now a move away <clears throat> entirely from open recon towards robotic. It will take time. Uh, but I think we could have made much less mistakes had we been hand in hand. One of the things that we're looking at now is you know, historically, how we re-implanted ureters, how we handled tissue. Um, and when we see that with the robot, there's no doubt the principles of Gilly attested to, and we've seen, you can apply those robotically much easier. Uh, but I think the recon surgeons had that wealth of experience that had we married together, it would have been a marriage in heaven, dare I say, but that didn't happen. 
But I think good things will come. Patients now vote with their feet. They want minimal access, and we know it's better as robotic surgeons. So I think it will all come. Well, that's great. That's a, uh, a good start, hopefully, to a good discussion today. Um, and uh, last but not least is Dr. Ben Breyer, uh, reconstructive urologist at the University of California. Uh, welcome, Dr. Breyer. Um, now, I happen to know that you received similar fellowship training to me at, uh, with Dr. Mackinich at UCSF. Uh, at what point in your career did you, as a trained reconstructive urologist, at what point in your career did you decide that it was necessary to make that transition from, um, from primarily open, which is what we were trained in fellowship, to laparoscopic? Um, you know, and I'll ask you to expand a little bit um, on what Dr. Flynn had already talked about. Thanks, Dr. Erickson. Um, so, you know, like you, I graduated in 2009 from residency. We were doing a fair number of, of robotic cases then, so I probably had about 150 robotic cases at graduation. But really my fellowship and my early attending experience was all open cases. Um, I was moderating uh, a session about three years ago at the AUA, a video session, and, and, and saw a bunch of robotic cases for bladder neck. And it really seemed um, to be a very accessible approach. And uh, so I, I reached out to my oncology partner, Max Mang, who's a really terrific robotic surgeon and was a mentor of mine in residency and have been doing the cases uh, with, with him. That's great. Um, we're going to have a lot of opportunity today to talk about um, some of the cases that might be better served with open versus robotic, but let's just move right on to case number one. So this is a 35-year-old female who underwent a lap hysterectomy for fibroids. You can see uh, the large uterus here with fibroid. Um, they, there's a, a coil in there already. Unfortunately, there's been a left ureteral transection that was actually noted intraoperatively after the uterus was removed. So I'm going to ask our panelists to kind of keep our answers to these questions to 30 seconds or so, if possible. So I'm going to go to first to you, Professor Kelly. What are your rules for performing emergent intraoperative ureteral repairs? In other words, if you have a trainee with you, what are you telling them when you encounter these uh, acute ureteral injuries? Oh, I, would, I would say to my trainee, get this right first time. Don't, don't get something that you have to go back on unless it's necessary for some reason intraoperatively. So if there's a partial transaction and it's clean, repair it over a stent and get out with a bit of a around it. Anything else, re-implant it and be safe. That's my Perfect. First. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> uh, Dr. Breyer, um, I'll go to you next. So is there ever a time where emergent repair for these is not advised? Um, and how would you manage them? And if, if you manage them in a delayed fashion, when would you do it? Yeah, you know, just like a trauma situation, Brad, there, there will be scenarios where they've had extensive blood loss and the patient needs further resuscitation. 
in a situation like that, uh, if it's a, a if they're in a damage control situation and it's just not safe to proceed with, as Dr. Kelly pointed out, a surgery that has an extremely high success rate, it is probably better to to pause, and you can simply clip the the very end of the transected ureter and put a perk in, um, and come back to fight another day. Hopefully you would be able to do it in the next couple days uh, if the patient is, is stabilized and better. Once you get a, once you get past the week mark, you really you'd you'd be in it'd be a bad idea to go back in and you'd probably want to wait two to three months before going back and doing something elective. So Dr. Un, the third question is for you. Um, if you noticed a uh, ureteral transection during a laparoscopic procedure. Now you're you're likely very skilled in pure lap, but would you ever would you ever consider docking a robot to repair these ureteral injuries um, if it's already a laparoscopic case? Um, so uh, that's a great question. That we have actually had similar situations like that in house. Uh, we would uh, close the ports, uh, ioban it, and I would transfer it into a robotic room to get that fixed. Uh, I just don't think, I personally don't have the capabilities laparoscopically. Maybe some of you guys out there do, but I just, I feel like you've got that one shot. This is a potentially litigious case. You want to make sure that you can make sure that that patient wakes up and it's fixed and that they don't have to go through a long period of recovery. I also um, feel like even um, for patients that are in other hospitals where they call me and like a week, two weeks out, um, they diagnose a ureteral injury. I actually have them ship it over, um, uh, transfer it uh, hospital to hospital, and we'll book it uh, that week. Um, I think it really brings down the litigation potential. And, um, you know, the GYNs all memorize your number, put you on speed dial, and, and any time they future, in the future get an injury, they will call you first thing. And so we've uh, developed a really nice rapport with our regional uh, GYNs because of the, this behavior. Yeah, I, I think those are excellent points. I mean, I... I I think we all probably say the same thing to our trainees, which is that you got to get it right the first time. Um, and if open is the way to do it, uh, the patients don't care. They just don't want a three-month protracted uh, follow-up. Uh, and speaking of medical legal concerns, Dr. Flynn, do you have anything to add about how you would advise your colleagues or residents about dealing with the medical legal ramifications of somebody else's ureteral injury that you've been called in to repair? Yeah, the first thing I do, Brad, is uh, I try to go out and talk to the family after the case with the GYN from an intraoperative consult, have them present why the injury occurred, and I'll present what I did to fix it. That avoids any miscommunication or any splintering of uh, the, the faculty. Uh, I do believe in trying to repair the injury the way the injury occurred, uh, if possible, if you have that skill set. I do a lot of vaginal surgery. I've been called in to fix ureters transvaginal. That's usually a stitch from a coldoplasty. You take the stitch out, problem solved. Patients do get upset when they open up, when they wake up with a big midline incision. So I would give a little caution. You don't need a midline. These are low injuries. You can do it through a fan and steel. Many of these women have had repeat C-sections. And if they don't have a new scar, they may um, be a little bit uh, less unhappy. Um, I heard Alan Wien once say, separate yourself from the tort. Uh, 
And I remember being a resident at the basic science course. And what he meant was trying to not, not finger point at the GYN, but make it clear uh, about what happened and what you're going to do to get the patient well. And the damage control sometimes is a situation where maybe you come into a case and it's a disaster. Eight hours have gone by, four liters of blood loss, patient's been in lithotomy. That's a situation where maybe you would want to consider tying off the ureter and then maybe the next day or the day after when the patient's resuscitated, bringing them into a robotic room and doing the case robotically. Can I, can I say one thing here? I think um, the one thing I just wanted to add in here was there's a lot of residents here watching this and attendings out there that don't see. I mean, we're a panel of experts and we can handle this. But I think that the one thing that you have to um, relate to the guys who are out there and may only see one of these every few years or a, a newly graduated resident in practice, just be completely honest, I think, and very transparent with the family and the patient. I think that even if you're not very experienced with it, tell them that and let them know. But tell them that um, you know you're the you're it you're the person that's been called in to help, and you're going to do everything in your power to make this better. But let them know, I think that um, you know what the situation is honestly. All great advice. Um, well, for the sake of time, we're going to go on to case two quickly. Seventy-five-year-old uh, female with a history of ovarian cancer. Um, this is probably a very common case of everybody that's on this panel, but they underwent surgery for debulking, underwent chemo, and now, of course, has this retroperitoneal fibrosis that's leading to this uh, distal ureteral stricture. Um, quickly, uh, Dr. Un, um, you know, I, I want you, of course, to comment eventually on your, on your robotic recon, but for the people listening to this, for these malignant obstructions, is your preference to put in a ureteral stent or a perk tube? It's whichever one is manageable, which one the patient can tolerate. Um, you know, I, my, my advice in malignant obstruction is don't do a formal repair in the setting of malignancy because it will fail again. And sometimes you don't know that there is a recurrence there, that the GYNs think that they're NED, and you go in there, and um, I fixed it. And at that time, I've seen funny tissue. I sent it off for biopsy, and it came back as malignancy. And that's a horrible way for the patient to find out that they've had a malignancy. But, um, you know, I, I would say steer clear, do everything you can do to rule out a recurrence. Great. Uh, Dr. Breyer, um, what, what are the images and workup that you want before you're considering doing a repair in a patient like this? Yeah, I think it, you know, you typically are going to want to get some uh, retrograde Pilogram, you're also going to want to get uh, antigrade pilogram if you have a perk. And then, of course, you want to stage the bladder uh, because the bladder is going to be important, uh, understanding how big the bladder is and whether there are any abnormalities to the bladder. Great. And Professor Kelly, um, can you walk us a little bit through it? Well, first of all, let me ask you this question. Um, is this a case that you would consider repairing uh, at all? And second, if you did it, uh, just walk us quickly through how you would set up the robotic repair. Yeah, so uh, I think given this individualized case of two years uh, disease-free, uh, I would repair this. I also think you go in and you find something very different, whether that's post-chemo 
desmoplastic response. Looking at this imaging, I would approach this as I would a bladder, probably go high, so my ports would be at the level of the umbilicus. Um, my camera would be above that, and I would be planning um, probably a Bwari flap here. You might get away with the source hitch, but I think it would be a straightforward, direct inlay to a Bwari flap. No anti-reflux mechanism. Uh, close up, leave a stent in and a catheter. I tie the stent to the catheter and take the whole thing out in about two weeks. And, and Dr. Flynn, um, what if this patient were radiated? How does that change your approach? Yeah, I find one of the most important pre-op evaluations is the CT cystogram. I like to look at the bladder thickness and the capacity. If the bladder's thickened, especially more than a centimeter, I'm concerned that the bladder won't flap. So let's assume this case, the patient did have radiation, the patient has a thickened bladder wall, small capacity, say less than 250, I'm going to go towards the ileo ureter. Um, I'm pretty comfortable doing complex cases robotically, with the exception of an ileo ureter that would require complete replacement or, say, bilateral replacement. This case, I would consider doing uh, the ileo ureter robotically, but that's really an advanced skill set that maybe Dan and a few other people have. But I think if you're going to go to an ileo ureter, you certainly have to prepare the patient for perhaps an open procedure. Right, and uh, Dr. Un, you, you provided me some data and your experience at Temple with radiated ureteral strictures. I wonder if you can comment on that. Yeah, um, you know, you could see with radiation-based strictures, I'm very hesitant to do a Bowari um, because a lot of times it's with GYN-based or rectal cancer with huge doses of radiation. I've had a complete disaster that I learned on my own personal lesson. So to me, a Bawari in a high radiation case is an uh, uh, option of last resort. The only thing I'd like to add also is I would get a diuretic renal scan to document um, a decompressed renal function on that before approaching that case. But here you could see that with various uh, um, techniques, and we really try not to transect across that ureter to try to preserve axial blood supply, we've really started doing more side-to-side reimplantations lately than end-to-side uh, traditional reimplants. Um, and so you can see that in our radiated cases, about an 88% success rate, which is not bad. Excellent. Yeah, I, I would uh, just echo everybody's comments about um, not doing too much with the bladder in radiated patients. And I know that there are series out there, not for robotic necessarily, but uh, for open cases with a high rate of avoiding dysfunction postoperatively with doing any type of bladder work for these cases. Um, okay, so thank you for that, panelists. We're going to move on to case number three. This is a, another kind of unique ureteral case, 58-year-old male with a 10-year history of stones. Um, of course, we've all seen this at a mid-ureteral injury after the uh, last ureteroscopic stone uh, case. The stent was removed per routine and quickly developed pain. And you see the CT scan and the subsequent retrograde pilogram. So here we have a non-radiated, non-malignant mid-ureteral stricture. Um, first question uh, is for Professor Kelly. 
Um, this kind of, I guess, expands on what Dr. Un just mentioned about getting a renal scan. At, at what point would you consider doing a nephrectomy, especially in a, in a case like this that has persistent stone in the collecting system? So I'd want to, so he's young. Um, he, I'd want to make sure he has uh, no metabolic problem that he would develop stones in the contralateral side. Is he diabetic? We need to save every nephron. Uh, but with a, a renal scan, if he's got 20% more or, or more in that kidney, I think it's very reasonable to preserve it, um, especially if he has any other factors that might cause renal decline in the future. So my cut point would be about 20% function. Um, uh, I'm sorry, 30%. 20, 20, 20, 20%. 20%. Yeah. Um, and especially so if he's got other comorbidities where he might need all his nephrons. Uh, thanks, no, doc, Dr. Breyer. When I, when I look at this uh, retrograde pilogram, it reminds me a lot of a retrograde urethrogram. I wonder if you take a similar approach looking at this stricture as you would with a urethral reconstruction. In other words, is, is this something you would look at and say, I think that I can do uh, an excision in primary anastomosis or have to add some type of augment with a buckle, for example? Yeah, you know, I, I think the analogy in a lot of ways makes sense. Uh, you have a narrowing, you have a tube. Um, certainly, though, the urethra has a lot more backing with the corpus spongiosa housing it. Um, this looks a little long to do something uh, primary anastomotic. Um, I do think that with nephropexy, you can bridge some type of gap, but this looks a little a little big. I think the question here, buckle would be uh, what a lot of panelists I, I bet would use. And the question I would have is, can you do it with the plate that you have or should you excise a portion? It would seem to me that you probably need to excise a small portion and do an augmented roof. Uh, but I'd be curious to hear what others say. Right. And I'm just going to move forward um, to Dr. Flynn, who provided me with these pictures. So this is Dr. Flynn's positioning for the mid ureteral stricture. Um, I wonder if you can talk us through some of these pearls, uh, Brian. Yeah, thanks, guys. Um, I've adopted the split leg approach for most of my mid and upper ureteral reconstructive cases, uh, especially in patients that have had stone disease. Um, this certainly gives you access to anti-grade and retrograde ureteroscopy. Uh, the firefly uh, certainly helps in cases in locating the stricture. If you're gonna consider doing an onlay with buckle, similar to the urethra, I think it's very important to be very precise on locating the stricture. So what I would usually do is put a perk tube in ahead of time, let the area cool down, similar to the analogies of urethral rest, do ureteral rest, let the stricture declare itself. I prefer the non-transected techniques, whether it's the urethra or the ureter, uh, trying to preserve as much of the surrounding tissue. So trying to avoid circumferential mobilization, just making an incision rather than excision, similar to the techniques we've migrated to in the urethra. I would say the graft generally does not need to be as wide as what you would have with urethral reconstruction. And I think Guido Barbagli and others have proved that pure onlay 
is just as good as an augmented anastomotic technique. And I think the literature will eventually show the same for the ureter. Yeah, I would, uh, I would echo that statement, Dr. Flynn. I know we're not talking about urethral reconstruction here, but I have uh, very quickly started to adopt the non-transecting techniques for the same, uh, same reasons. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Dr. Un, we're going to have to kind of fast forward through some of these. Um, I do want you to talk through what we're looking at here um, and, and what you're doing with these buckle graphs and what, what your approach is. Yeah, um, I think I would, um, my opinion is going to echo a lot what we just heard. I, you know, it's great that you don't have to dissect the full circumferentially and leave the back wall intact. Uh, here, this is a long length, maybe a six centimeter uh, buckle graft here uh, on a mid stricture. And, you know, you don't have to go that wide. You don't have to oversize this. I think that um, the decision sometimes to augment versus just doing an onlay depends on if there's, um, if there's an obliterated segment or not. If it's obliterated, you got to cut that out and put a back wall together. In, in which situations would you consider using this appendiceal repair? Yeah, so we developed this bypass for right-sided strictures that uh, run up uh, to the mid ureter and the bladder capacity is small. And so instead of doing a traditional interposition, what we do is leave that ureter alone, find the segment where it's open and not obstructed, do a side uh, incision and do an end to side up above and then plant the uh, tip of the appendix onto the dome of the bladder. That way there's two routes now in in a true bypass fashion. And it works really well for people with small capacity bladders due to radiation. And it really minimizes the amount of defect that needs to, or the anastomosis that needs to uh, heal. Yeah, and I would, um, you know, I would just expand maybe on what Dr. Flynn mentioned, um, using the same analogy, without transecting the ureter, it probably keeps that normal ureteral segment more distal. Um, and maybe makes it easier to sew your appendix to. Yeah, when you when you shoot Firefly and you look up really close at that ureter, even on these radiated cases, you see axial blood supply, one or two uh, axial arteries running up, and it's really nice to try to preserve them and maybe cut in between them and to not disrupt. Because, you know, a, a small segment stricture will turn into a long segment stricture sometimes after you over mobilize it or take the blood supply for it. So this is a picture of my Bawari that one I just wanted to show you where Firefly showed that the Bawari was cold. I did it anyway. And when you know it, a week later, the whole thing broke down and turned into a huge problem. Well, that completes the session. I'd like to, again, thank the AUA for having us and Professor Kelly, Dr. Breyer, Dr. Flynn, and Dr. Un for discussing some of the nuances of ureteral reconstruction and the utilization of robotic surgery. Thank you.